I ask that you join me in the book of the Psalms, Psalm 16. So as you all should know that we finished Joshua, and we're going to go back to John and continue our series through John, but I figured now would be a great time to fit in a psalm. And I have been meditating on this psalm for uh, a couple weeks now, Psalm 16, and it's really connected closely to a catechism question and answer. My favorite catechism is by Hercules Collins. He was a particular Baptist from the 1680s, and it's called the Orthodox Catechism, and it's based on the Heidelberg. I almost didn't start my timer. We could have been here a long time based on the Heidelberg Catechism, and it opens with this wonderful line. The question is this, what is your only comfort in life and in death? Think about that for a minute. That's a pretty profound way to open up a catechism. What is your only comfort in life and in death? How would you answer? Think about it for a minute. How would you answer that question? What is your only comfort? What is your only hope? And the answer, or at least the very first part of the answer, because it's much longer, but the first part of the answer is that I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. So what is my only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, I meditate on this truth often because it is a great comfort to me as I travel through this thing called life, with the ups and the downs that come with it. And the psalm before us this morning speaks of this reality. It answers the question, what is our only hope? What is our only comfort? And that's the title of this sermon, what is our only hope? Or better yet, is our only hope is... And we will answer that this morning. Let's, close, let's open up this time of preaching of the word in prayer. Father, as we approach your text this morning, this inspired word that you gave to your servant David to be of use to us today, that prophesies of Jesus Christ and how you have done an amazing thing with your dear son, truly God and truly man. Father, as we reflect on the text this morning, I'm reminded of Sonoida Bible Church as they are preaching your word this morning as well. I pray for Pastor Mike Wright as he seeks to honor the text, as he wants to pr uh, preach the gospel clearly. Lord, I pray that you would give results, that there would be lives transformed by the gospel message that he preaches. And Lord, as our congregation worships you, we we recognize the privilege we have of not being in a country that is hostile to the proclamation of the word. Father, and we, uh, we ask for your grace to us that we would not take our privilege lightly, that we would make every effort to take advantage of what you have given us. Father, we ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and by your spirit. Amen. Now, I really hope that this subject is something that you have wrestled with. What is your only hope in life and death? Because the world will 
give you many opinions. In fact, many Christians have many opinions. And so as we look at this psalm, I want you to think about why do you believe what you believe? Why do you believe what you believe? I mean, anybody in here should give me an answer to why they believe what they believe. But the question is, where do you look for happiness? Where are you pursuing happiness? Where are you pursuing joy? Psalm 16 is a prayer of David. It's meant to be sung or meditated on, and it is used in worship. But it should also convince us that true and lasting joy is found in God alone. So this morning, as we consider the psalm and how it answers the question, what is our only comfort in life and death, I want you to see three main truths. So I hope you can see three main truths with me as we look at this psalm. Number one, God is our only hope, verses 1 through 4. Those who hope in God have four blessings, and then the path to life is Jesus who brings us the blessings of joy. So God is our only hope. Let's look at verses 1 through 4. Why is God our only hope? Because it tells us a lot about him. So verse 1 begins with this. Protect me, God, for I take refuge in you. I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. As for the holy people who are in the land, they are the noble ones. They are my delight. Excuse me. All my delight is in them. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names with my lips. So why is God our only hope? Well, number one, he's a refuge. Think about the word refuge for a minute. God is refuge. David, he begins with a request to God, and he expresses his commitment to the Lord. And David starts with this Hebrew word, shamar. This word means to protect or guard. And if you were a Hebrew, this would, be, would call to mind the garden. What was Adam's responsibility in the Garden of Eden? It was to guard and to cultivate the garden, to shamar the garden. That is, protect it, to guard it. The priests were commanded to shamar the tabernacle. It was the responsibility of the priest to guard the holiness of the tabernacle. The same Hebrew word. Abraham and later the Israelites were commanded to shamar the commands of the Lord. Because God is faithful to do what he commands others, David knows that he can take refuge in him. So David, using the language that God has instructed the people throughout this time, to shamar. But it's so interesting to me as you look at this, it says, protect me God. And the Hebrew word here for God is El. It's the generic term, kind of how we would say God in a general sense. But then in verse 2, he uses two different words. And you can tell this in your English Bible. So first you see Lord in all caps. You guys see Lord in all caps, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. What does that stand for? Yahweh. 
the personal, the intimate name. Sometimes the old timers, they, they translated it as Jehovah. But Yahweh is his name, his personal name that he spoke to, Mer, uh, to Moses in the burning bush. It's the name that God reveals himself to Israel. So we start with protect me, God, in a generic sense. For I take refuge in you. I said that to you, the to Yahweh, you are my Adonai. You are my Lord. You are my sovereign ruler over creation. This is the God that David finds refuge in. Not just a general God, not just any God, not a God of his own imagination, but the personal intimate God who revealed himself. And he reflects on one particular aspect of this God. The refuge of the sovereign. The refuge of the one who is in control. In the New Testament, Jesus is revealed as Lord and Savior. And if Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then you can say with David, I have nothing good beside you. What does it take to say that? In verse 2, it says, I said to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have nothing good besides you. David is the king of Israel. Do you think he would have some good things? Some wives, some concubines, some kids. But he says, I have nothing good besides you. But not only that, God alone is our good. So David sees God Yahweh as refuge, and then he sees him as good, the only good. God alone is our good. As he continues the address, he says, I have nothing good besides you. And this is a recognition that God alone is our good. God is the source of all good. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. If you do not have God himself, even the best things in life will have no value. Matthew 16.26 says, For what will it benefit someone if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will anyone give in exchange for his life? So it means that coming to know God as our refuge, our Redeemer and Lord, Nothing can ever mean as much to us as God does. This psalm is, is really quite powerful. So God is our refuge, but he's also the sole source of good. And then verses 3 through 4, we see the, the second greatest commandment being explained. These next two verses, we see this fascinating reality. It says, because of God... We have a special affinity to those also who delight and take refuge in God. So the first one, you could say, is the first table of the commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. In verses 3 and 4, we see, as for the holy people, or for the saints, for those that are holy, who are in the land, they are the noble ones. All my delight is in them. And then verse 4, we have the sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. I will not pour out their drink offerings of blood, and I will not speak their names on my lips. Our relationship with God has a bearing on our relationship with others. David is drawn to the righteous 
That means those that are holy, those that love God like He loves God. Verse 3, He turns from the holy to the wicked, sort of like Psalm 1. Jesus commands us to love God, love others, and if we love God, we cannot help but love those that also love Him. If you think about our congregation, a lot of us don't have a ton of things in common. But we have one main thing in common, and that's why we gather here. We have the Lord Jesus. And because we delight in the Lord Jesus, we can delight in those that we probably wouldn't hang out with normally. And that's what the reality that we see here. And there's, there's really a practical matter here. And the question I want to ask you is, do you love other Christians? Do you find it good and rewarding to be with them? It's a simple test. Those who love the Lord will love the company of those who also love Him. Do you find it uncomfortable to be with those who openly sin? Are you troubled by their values and their blasphemies? Or are you at ease with them? Psalm 1 gives us a very interesting progression, and I'm just going to read it quickly. It says, how happy is the one who does not walk in the advice of the wicked. So now we have walking with them. Or stand in the pathway with sinners. Now we're hanging out with them. Or sit in the company of scoffers. We see this progression. Are you comfortable with the wicked? Verse 4 is a startling warning. Those who are idolaters will have great sorrow. Look at verse 4 again with me. The sorrows of those who take another God for themselves will multiply. The psalmist is teaching us a very important lesson here. As I meditated on this verse this week, I'm reminded that my greatest enemy is the idol of self. Self steals my joy in suffering. It leads me to sinning. When I am not satisfied in God because of self, I will seek satisfaction in created things which lead to greater sorrow. If I am self-protective, if I'm seeking self-esteem, if I'm oriented on self-improvement, I will not find God as my refuge. I will not get the benefits. William Bridge says, so long as man has encouragement elsewhere, elsewhere, he does not encourage himself in the Lord his God. And so self is the greatest enemy to my joy in suffering. And so David begins to point out another way. In verses 5 through 9, we see that God is our blessing. If the God of verses 1 through 4 is your God, then you get the blessings. I want you to follow the logic with me. So God is refuge. He is our source of good. And then if you are in Him, you receive these joys and these blessings. So please see this in the text with me. And don't take my word for it. Do the extra work this morning. Apprehend this truth. Make this truth real to you. Look at verse 5. It says, Lord, You are my portion and my cup of blessing. You hold my future. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The first thing we see in verse 5 is the Lord 
is our portion and cup. So that word Lord here, of course, is Yahweh. He is our daily bread. He's our allotment. He is our cup of blessing. And that is the greatest blessing. We get the Lord. So if God is not your refuge, if He's not your Savior and He's not your Lord, then you won't be thrilled with this reality. You'll be, you're going to say, well, that's it? That's all I get? All I get is the Lord? What about this? What about the boat? What about the nice house? But for those of us who know God through Jesus Christ, this is what we truly long for. Our hearts are transformed at regeneration to want this. If you ever want to see if you are saved, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do I want God? God, not for His gifts, but for who He is. Do I want God? And if you don't want God, it's because you don't know God. And if you get to know God, then you're going to want Him. Do you see this logic? Next, we see that the Lord is our inheritance. Verse 6. The boundary lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Think about this with me for a minute. We, we just got done with Joshua, and as we went through Joshua, there were quite a lot of boundary lines mentioned, quite a lot of inheritances brought forward. And when we think about that, imagine with me, if you are about to receive an inheritance, and you're going through the land, and you're casting lots for who gets what, and you look, and you're like, man, I really would love to have that olive grove, or I'd really like to have that winery. And guess what? The lot falls, and you receive that place. You would say, wow, what an amazing blessing. So our text, which is describing the process of measuring out boundaries or property, David is alluding to how his plot or his portion, is a blessing from the Lord. So with God, each gift is a blessing, but without God, every gift is a curse. And as we look at these things, we see the beauty of what it means to have a beautiful inheritance. Some translations will say that God is his inheritance, and that's what he's reflecting on. You remember the priests in the time of Joshua. What was their inheritance? Over and over again, Joshua repeated this refrain. It says the Lord, Yahweh, is their inheritance. They, won't, they were not going to get the land. They were going to get Yahweh, which is what David is alluding to here. The next thing we see is that the Lord is our counselor. In verses 7 through 8, it says, I will bless the Lord who counsels me. Even at night, when my thoughts trouble me, I always let the Lord guide me because He is at my right hand. I will not be shaken. He counsels us, especially in the night, when we feel most alone, when we're lying in bed thinking about troubling things. David, as king, would have many decisions. Imagine being king for a minute, king of Israel. Think of all the enemies that would like to take your land. Think about all the, the thoughts that he would have to have about how to manage um, this, this, this people called Israel. He would have a lot to think about, wouldn't he? Probably a lot more than most of us. 
And if he is a thinking man, he probably would worry. And he'd probably be in bed, staying up late at night, thinking about decisions that he has to make or he has made. How many of you have made a silly decision in your life and then reflected on that for quite a bit? There's a lot of funny memes out there about people who said something really awkward one time, and they said, I've, I will never stop thinking about 20 years ago when I said that awkward thing, right? So David would have a similar situation where he has to have counsel. And so he says that he gets his counsel from God. And we know that God provides counsel and delights to answer the prayer for wisdom, as James 1.5 says. And we know that God's word produces this heart-mending truth as uh, Psalm 1 talks about meditating on the law day and night. And so because the Lord is our counselor, he guides us. The guidance of the Almighty provides security. Another translation option is, I place the Lord always before me. Which once again, echoes the language of Psalm 1. On his law, I meditate day and night, making us like a tree planted by the water. Or Jeremiah 17 where there is no fear for the person who is planted near the source of living water. So look at our verse. It says, I bless the Lord who counsel me, counsels me, even at night when my thoughts trouble me. I always let the Lord guide me or I have placed the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. This is the antidote to fear. How many people have anxiety and worry and fear? We have the answer right here. Place the Lord always before you. But David doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, the Lord is our security and joy. Verse 9 says, therefore, we ask, what is it therefore? My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My body also rests securely. Can you say that about yourself? How can David say that? He says the security that he has by finding refuge in God, by having him be the one who counsels him and the one that guides him, by following the Lord's commands, he is able to have gladness and joy and security, physical security even. David says his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices and his body rests securely. You can catch the themes from all these other psalms right here in this passage because Psalm 4 and Psalm 13 in particular repeat the same refrain. And this is the portion of those who know their God. Security and joy. Joy everlasting. Eternal pleasures at the right hand. Now, I often will run into a question in ministry. They will say something like this, if God is my security, God promises to be a refuge for us, yet this bad thing happened to me. Most people do not think about this, of course, until something bad happens. I want you to think about this with me now. I want you to contemplate this with me now. If God is my refuge, if he is my security, if he is the one that's going to provide for me, why did this bad thing happen to me? Why will bad things happen to me? 
First, God never promises that no evil will ever happen to us in this age. In fact, the Holy Spirit tells us through Paul that we will experience trials and tribulations if we are believers. 2 Timothy 3.12 So what do we make of this promise? I'm undermining my whole argument here, aren't I? Just like we have disordered loves, in other words, we love the creature more than the creator, we love the gift more than the gift giver, we also have disordered fears. We fear too little the things that are most dangerous to our souls. And we fear too much the things that are less dangerous to our souls. That's what 1 Timothy 6.10 tells us. So we fear losing our job more than we fear losing our integrity. We would rather lie than have people think lesser of us. The reality is that we are taught that evil is what he delivers us from, not merely external evil, but internal evil. The fears that we are delivered from are not circumstances, but our own disordered fears. So we must fear God rather than man. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalm 34, 19 says, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Most often, glory is, comes through trials and tribulations. The conformity to Christ happens through suffering. The lion and the lamb laying down together happens after trials and tribulations. John 16.33 says, In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now, this is my favorite one because Luke 21, 16 through 19. Some of you, they will put to death. So keep that in the back of your mind. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. And then listen to this. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. What is Jesus talking about? He just said some of you will be put to death, but then... Your hair won't perish. Does that mean I'm going to die with a nice head of hair? What is he talking about? There must be something greater. There must be an eternal perspective that God has that we do not have. And that's what he is saying here. Paul to the Romans, I think, makes this very clear. He says we are delivered from evil by overcoming it in Jesus. Romans 8, 35-39. I'm just going to read it. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if we go back to, to Psalm 16 and, and the top part of it where God is our refuge, I have no other good thing, then I can endure persecution. I can endure the loss of my stuff 
I can endure the, the death of my family members. I can stand by their graves and say, it is well with my soul. Why can I say that? Because God is my God of comfort. He is my refuge. He is all that is good. And then I can enjoy it when we live. I can enjoy the good things. It's interesting to me that David and Paul seem to be on the same page. Have you ever thought about that? How come these two guys are on the same page? It's because they know the same God. It's like they must be carried along by the Holy Spirit since they write about a thousand years apart. We can also recognize the eternal perspective that's driving David and Paul. David seems to point to this reality in our passage. Verses 10 through 11 give us the eternal perspective of David. It says this, For you will not abandon me to Sheol or Hades, if you're using the Greek translation. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. You reveal the path of my life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. And at your right hand are eternal pleasures. Abundant joy and eternal pleasures? Man, who doesn't want that? So where does this come from? Why does David say this? Think about this for a minute. Verse 10, you will not abandon me to Sheol. You will not allow your faithful one to see decay. What's he talking about? Verse 10, I think most Old Testaments could say the first part, right? For you will not abandon me to Sheol. They recognize that when we die, we go and we're with God. We're in Abraham's bosom for those Old Testament folks, right? We are with the Lord. In fact, Job says something similar. In, verses, uh, in chapter 19 of Job, verses 25 and 27, he says, But I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on the dust, even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. Job, what are we talking about here? Your skin's destroyed, but you're going to see God in, in your flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him, and not as a stranger, my heart longs within me. Only when you take into account the second part of, of verse 10 in Psalm 16 do you see Jesus. Look at verse 10, the second part. It says, you will not allow your faithful one to see decay. Who is that referring to? Jesus. Jesus died three days later. He arose. He did not see decay. That's what Acts is talking about. That's why I had Ryan read us from the book of Acts. When Peter stands up and he makes that declaration, he's recognizing this truth. The one who died but didn't see decay. The one who died but did not have a decayed body is Jesus Christ. Also, Acts 13, 35, it, it refers to this passage as well. Uh, David is often referred to as a prophet because he is prophesying about the coming Messiah. He is a prophesying about the coming of Jesus. Now, this can't apply to any other mere human. All the rest of these, David's body was in the tomb. Job died. All these folks passed away. It is only a prophecy concerning the resurrection of Jesus. And so we have David here expressing something that he cannot truly know unless it was revealed by God. And I think David recognizes this. Look at verse 11 with me. It says, 
you reveal, right, there's that word of revelation, the path of life to me. You reveal the path of life. If the faithful one is Jesus Christ, since his body has never experienced decay, then David sees the path of life revealed to him. The path of life must be revealed. You cannot just stumble upon the path of life. There is a revelation to it. We do not discover it on our own because of our wisdom or our abilities or our skills. God reveals the way, and that way is Jesus. This is such a a precious truth, and the revealed path, Jesus says, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It leads us to the presence of God. And why is that important? Why is the presence of God so important? Because there's abundant joy. Pleasures for eternality. Pleasures evermore. In the New Testament, who sits at the right hand of God the Father? Jesus. Look at this again. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. I don't know about you, but this just stirs my heart. Who is the eternal pleasure? Jesus. In Jesus alone do we have eternal pleasures. Now you may, well, before I get there, would you have abundant joy? Would you have eternal pleasures? It's found in Jesus. Joy is found in the presence of God. It is a fruit of the Spirit. And I can look at nature and I can glorify and worship the Creator because I know the Creator. Now you might be objecting in your mind right now. There may be some objections one possible objection is that when I look at Christians, they seem pretty miserable. How can you say there is abundant joy when every time I talk to them, they're just barely surviving? They're barely making it through the day. Now, my answer is many Christians do not spend time cultivating the joy that comes from God. Many of us do not spend the effort to cultivate the joy that comes from God. It's, it's kind of like if I wanted some oranges this summer from my own trees, I would have had to plant the tree several years ago to get the oranges. I can't go out there right now and then plant an orange tree and expect oranges right away. If you would like to have this joy, it means that you need to cultivate it. And so when I, when I, uh, what I mean is that joy is a fruit of the Spirit. So in order to have joy... We must be first born again. And second, we must walk by the Spirit. Now, there's some some weird ideas out there about the Spirit, about the Holy Spirit and what that looks like. What I'm talking about here is Galatians 5.16. That tells us what walking by the Spirit looks like. Galatians 5.16 says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desires of the flesh. If you read that whole passage, what you see is, that Christians are not putting to death the, the desires of the flesh, which is causing them great misery. Go back to Psalm 16 and look at verse 4 with me. The sorrows of those who take another God. When you take another God, when your flesh is your God, when your stomach is your Lord, when your emotions rule you, 
you have taken another God for yourself and you are going to be miserable. You sow sin, you reap misery. If you want to, to sum that up. The flesh which is causing great misery. And while the true Christian will never be separated from the love of God, they can fail to enjoy the full benefits of it. The biggest enemy to our joy and suffering is always ourselves. I find this principle in myself. When I am not finding joy in the Lord, it is because some selfish desire has gotten in the way. It could be that I want relief from my struggle more than I treasure Christ. It could be that I want comfort more than I want to please my Lord. All these idols from verse 4, they manifest in misery. As Jesus tells us, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So we should do this. And this is super practical as I finish up. First, you should identify. Identify the idol that is stealing your joy. Ask questions like, why am I angry? What am I afraid of getting or not getting? What is it that I am wanting in this situation? When I am grumpy with my children because I want to sit on the couch and read my book, and they're interrupting it, that has become an idol. Comfort has become the idol, and that's why I'm responding. I confess, I acknowledge before God that I have been trading him for another God. Another translation of verse 4 says, those who barter for another God. You are you're handing off God, the living God, for another God. So I confess that. I say, Lord, I have made comfort my idol. I want to please myself rather than serve my Lord, by taking care of my children, I confess it. And then I need to refix my eyes on Christ in proper worship of Him. This means that you're putting off those old idols and putting on the attitude that we are called to. If you want to do your home study, Ephesians 4 is a great place to begin to look at what it means to put off and to put on. And so there is a quote that I want to share with you. The way to finding your joy in Christ and not the passing things of this world is this. It would do no good just to kill the deed and leave the desire. It would do no good to kill the deed and leave the desire. That is not the way of Jesus. Jesus' way is putting to death the deed by putting to death the, the desire. Strangle the deed by cutting off its air supply, namely the deceit that it will bring us lasting joy. That is how you cling to Jesus as your treasure. And so this week, I want us to cling to Christ as we consider what is our only hope in life and death. So we've come full circle here in our meditation, haven't we? What is our only hope in life and death that I am not my own but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ? And we could summarize that, that God is our only hope, God is our blessings, and the path to life is Jesus who brings us the blessings of joy. Justin is going to come forward and he's going to play a new song. And I know you guys might be getting tired of new songs. But because Justin is only here with us for a short time, I'm going to take full advantage of his guitar playing skills so that we play some new songs. And this is a new song um, by a group of folks, and it's titled, aptly enough, Our Only Hope in Life and Death.
So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Father, as we contemplate what our only hope in life and death is, we recognize that it is through Jesus Christ alone, that happiness, eternal joy, and pleasures are at your right hand. Father, we can be joyful Christians today as we cultivate what you have given us through the Spirit, as we put to death the deeds of the flesh. Father, as we put to death the desires that so easily entangle us and lead us astray. Father, help us to find our joy, our hope, our comfort in you and you alone this week. Father, I pray these things and I ask these things in the beautiful name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.